Hello and welcome to Afroqueer. I'm your host, Sally Chum. I'm here to announce that season three will be launching very soon. So set your calendars for Tuesday, July 7th. We're going to take you to Morocco to tell you a story of a really incredible woman. I'm going to leave it at that because you're just going to have to tune in. But after that, we'll be releasing season three episodes every two weeks. And there are some amazing stories that we just can't wait to share with you all. I also want to say a special welcome to all of our new listeners. We have a bunch of episodes from season one and two, and you should go back and binge them all. But today, I'm especially delighted to bring you this rebroadcast. Earlier this year, I was interviewed for the podcast How Sound. How Sound is hosted by producer Rob Rosenthal, and it's all about the backstory to great audio storytelling. Rob and I had a wide-ranging conversation about podcasting in Kenya and around the continent. We go deep into some of Afroqueer's episodes and talk about the joy and privilege of telling queer African stories. We wanted to share this How Sound episode with our Afroqueer listeners. This is How Sound, the backstory to great audio storytelling. How Sound hails to you from Woods Hole, Massachusetts. It's a co-production of PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. I was gobbling up episodes of the Afroqueer podcast not too long ago, just one after another. Boom, boom, boom. I spent a lot of time online trying to find queer films and TV shows. Yeah, I've watched a lot of L Word. Like a lot of queer folk, I'm starved for queer content, and I will spend hours on YouTube watching sometimes poorly made videos just to see an LGBT storyline. And very rarely are the videos made in Africa or center African experiences. There are just not that many queer African films, and I was sure I had watched all of them. But a few years ago, YouTube made a recommendation. It was a film called Dakon. I had never heard of this film. The description said that it was the first West African feature film to deal with homosexuality and that it was filmed in the West African country of Guinea and was released in 1997. Dakan means destiny in Mandinka, one of the languages spoken in Guinea. I thought, this can't be real. An African gay movie made more than 20 years ago? Sally Chum is the host and executive producer of Afroqueer. Sally goes on to describe the qualities of Dakan, the lighting, the acting, the overall production values, how it's similar to the film Moonlight. The first scene opens with two men in a red convertible at night. Their names are Manga and Sori, and they're kissing passionately. When Manga gets home, he asks his mother, is it bad to be attracted to someone of the same gender? She replies, it never happened. Since time began, it's never happened. Sully then explains how startling the movie is, given its frank depiction of gay life in Guinea. She says it's almost inconceivable that a movie this open could have been produced in the 1990s in West Africa. This film is a big deal because homosexuality is criminalized in 33 of the 54 countries here on the African continent. 
Some of these countries have gay propaganda laws which ban public conversations about homosexuality. Other countries censor queer content. The rules and the punishments vary. But this means that films, plays, TV shows, YouTube videos with queer content are difficult to make in Africa. That context prompts a question. If it's difficult to make openly gay films in Africa, what about an openly gay podcast? It was just a calling. It, it was just something that happened to me and I walked to that path. Sully's walk down that path started with a murder. In 2004, Sully was living and teaching high school in Chicago when she read an article about a lesbian activist in Sierra Leone. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is Fanyan Eddie and I'm representing Madri. I would like to use this opportunity... In 2004, an activist by the name of Fanny Ann Eddy, she was murdered in her offices uh, after returning from the UN in Geneva, um, giving a speech about um, the experiences of queer Africans in Sierra Leone, and then she was brutally murdered. ...which most African leaders do not like to address. In fact, many African leaders do not want to even acknowledge that we exist. In response to the killing, Sully picked up a microphone, traveled to Africa, and recorded oral histories, over 500 of them. She called the project None on Record, Stories of Queer Africa. You know, I was like 24 years old and very optimistic that if people could hear stories from queer, from queer Africans, it would change how they, how they treated queer Africans. I was very optimistic in this way. Um, and, you know, luckily that, that level of optimism kept me going for so long to see it get to this point where we are now. You make it sound like it was something easy. <laughs> I mean, let me, so I just listed for you all the ways in which you described how the LGBT com community is, you know, um, for lack of a better word, treated on the continent. And you told me about the murder of a woman f who was killed just for being herself. Yep. And so the way you talk about starting all this is sort of like, yeah, so I just decided I, uh, I wanted to do it. <laughs> well, that's really actually what happened, Rob. <laughs> yeah, but I guess internally I'm wondering what was going on for you. It couldn't have been that simple for you to make that decision. Um, you know, I think, you know, as a queer person myself, as an African person myself, um, you know, as a Senegalese person myself, that, that level of sort of trauma around not being accepted, you know, um, by your family, by your society, you know, your culture, your religion, those things are very real. Those were very real for me at that time. Um, and I think, you know, kind of the fear and the anxiety of that also made me brave um, because I felt that if I could... If I could do something to create a visibility so that people could see themselves reflected back, I could then see myself reflected back too, you know? So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that it was easy. It was more like, I feel like I have to do this because if I don't do this, even for me personally, I'm going to be, you know, living in this kind of in-between <laughs> sort of identity. Sully was born and raised in the States and spent time with family in West Africa. As a child, she said she heard a lot of negative comments and myths about homosexuality, thinking that continues today. For instance, in 2019, Sully was interviewed by the BBC about her oral history project. And afterwards, a slew of negative comments about her work were posted at the BBC website. In a presentation Sully made to an audience in Boston, she played a montage of voices reading those comments. 
Stop promoting rubbish. We don't want any white man's curse in Africa. Africans are not gays or lesbians. There you go again, invading Africa with Western rubbish. We've got our own culture. They should accept that. We reject it completely. Eesh! We condemn and reject. This is white people's baseless culture, not Africans. So these are the kind of things that you're hearing. You know, it's outside of our culture. It's not part of our religion. It's not part of our faith. You can't be a queer person and be in our family, you know. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, Fanny Ann's murder was an illustration. No, like a real life implication of that kind of, you know, that kind of violence um, and that kind of um, prejudice that uh, queer Africans face, that I faced as well. So I think in terms of, of documenting, that's really what it was about. It was like, you know, it's, it's like I'm going to do this because I need to feel validated that I am okay in my skin. I need to feel that, um, you know, there's, there's other people like me. I need to hear their stories. So traveling for me was just as therapeutic as it was for people who told the stories. I guess, Rob, what I'm saying in that way, you know, it was, it was difficult because of the circumstance but the power of transformation, of being seen, of, of having community with people like you to say that, no, we do exist, you know, that our history may have been erased, but that we're here. We're going to find a way to collectively um, create it, create that history or that reality. That's some of the most empowering experience I had, you know. And so it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't all doom and gloom. It was actually a very transformative process to begin this work and to be doing this work now. Along the way, Sully's oral history project morphed into a podcast. Testing, one, two, three. Okay. So, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Kay. Namaste. <laughs> that's Kay. That's not her real name, but that's what we'll call her to protect her identity. Kay, who is 27, is tall and thin. Afroqueer launched in July of 2018, and they've released over 15 episodes so far with stories from across the continent. A gay pride event in a refugee camp in Kenya. A gay wedding that broke the Nigerian internet, as they put it. Safety issues for people who use Grindr. There are dark stories, too, about sexual assault and gender-based violence against queer people. And this episode, called From Minneapolis to Mogadishu. It's the story of a woman who could not come out to her Somali family in Minnesota. She had to keep her guard up to not reveal her sexuality. Minneapolis is home to a small community of LGBT Africans. They brunch, lunch, and party together. And they also look out for each other. And perhaps that's why she let her guard down. Kay fell in love with a woman named Jo. Growing up, emotion was not a thing. Hugs and kisses, I love you. You gotta be a G. You cry, you cry in the bathroom. You don't talk about emotions. But inside of her new relationship, Kay found intimacy. And Kay found herself. So she taught me a lot about myself and being comfortable with my sexuality. And I find myself holding, my, holding her, kissing her in public, and then forgetting that I'm in, I'm in Minnesota. That, yo, shit, that taxi driver could be my uncle. Like, you know, like just seeing people and not knowing they could be my family member, but then also being okay with it. She was living at home with her family. She couldn't come out to them, afraid of how they would react and because of how they could be seen in the Somali community. So like my family in a way started catching up to the feelings that I have. I would have her at my house as my friend, but my mom would see how I'm looking at her. Like, yo, you look at her like, not like a friend. I see the eyes and I'd be like, no, no, no. 
she's my homie, she's my friend. They're like, yo, like we're not born yesterday. I see how you look at her. In the spring of 2018, Kay's father was deported from Minneapolis. This hit Kay hard. A few months later, he called her. He wanted her to come visit him in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. And so my dad was like, come and visit me. Kay hadn't seen him in months. She was very close to him and saw this as a chance to spend time with him and her grandmother, who also lives in Somalia. So when her dad called, she went. And I love him, so I went. To, I quit my job at the co-op. Kay got on a plane and journeyed from Minneapolis to Mogadishu. Her first few weeks in Somalia were picturesque. She posted photographs on Instagram of her standing along white sandy beaches with the blue-green Indian Ocean behind her, wearing elegant tunics that flow with the breeze and a large smile. On a day that seemed no different from the rest, her father and grandmother took her for a drive to go buy her grandmother medication. And they walked me into a building, and um, a woman just grabbed my hand and pulled me between curtains, and my family was gone. So this woman tells me to take off like my jewelry, my nose piercing, brings me a, a whole hijab, and um, I buy it, and I'm asking questions, but I'm also trying to keep my composure. And she's like, "Oh, we're gonna. We're, this is this is for you to like uh, to give you Quran, to read Quran on you." And I'm like, "This is not a Quran Quran thing that I've ever been through in my life. I don't. This is kind of weird." And she's like, "No, no, no." Like, and I'm like, "I just want to see my grandmother. I just want to see my dad." She's like, "Oh, like you're gonna see them." And I see all these beds lined up. An hour goes by. My backpack is my backpack is brought in, the shampoo, toothbrush, deodorant, some bodies for me to wear, and I have no phone. I have no one to call. My legs are chained. Like um, nothing. There's nothing I could do. Her family had put her into basically you know, Islamic Rehabilitation Center where she could not, she was not free to go. The people that she loved the most just did this to her, you know, and then then the violence that she had to face while she was in there. Um, I think now the UN is actually looking at um, rehabilitation centers across the Global South in particular. Um, and this was one story that they, they were able to, um, and I think another organization called Outright International were able to use to illustrate this is what happens to people, and this, and like, how do we, how do we change this, you know? And then the community in Minneapolis were able to use it um, to talk to their elders for the first time and say, "This is not right. You cannot send your children, you know, to Somalia to be chained up against their will." Are there stories you'd like to report on, but you can't? Uh, yeah, actually, there are quite a few. Um, there's a story of a couple, um, a married couple, that I would love to do, um, but. But the thing is, like, we can do all of these, you know, complicated documentary-style stories. If we try to do a love story, <laughs> those are really difficult to do um, because they're extremely personal um, to the individuals. And a lot of times, those stories, um, those stories out people in a way that they they can't they can't afford to have happen, right? So um, there's so many, and there's stories of people who have adopted children and are raising children. Um, and, you know, same-sex families, you know, with same-sex parents. 
and we can't report those stories, even though we know so many of those families, you know, and it would be incredible to to share that story, to show people that there are different ways that families can exist and thrive, you know. Um, there's different ways that people, you know, meet and fall in love. And it's almost like the more personal the story gets, the harder it is to, to actually be able to tell it and keep people safe. Initially, the intended audience for Afroqueer was just that, queer Africans. The mission of the podcast was, in part, to help LGBTQ people feel seen and supported. Since then, Sally says the audience for the podcast has grown far beyond the boundaries of the continent. And I think for us, it's really important that we try our best to penetrate into the mainstream with this podcast, like try to get people to listen to it who may not always listen to something that is queer or is even African or is a combination of African and queer um, so that that it can start to transform their perceptions, right? Or so that they have better understanding of the complicated nature of the queer identity here on the continent. I have to say, as a straight American listener, I'm very appreciative of the factual information Sully includes in her narration. It helps orient listeners like me who maybe aren't fully conversant in the subject matter or the continent. Like take this moment in the Dakar episode, where Sully provides a little bit of information about Guinea. So we got on a plane and flew from Kenya to Guinea to find Mohamed Kamara. Guinea is a French-speaking country of 12 million people on the west coast of Africa. The capital is Conakry, and that is where we traveled to meet Mohamed Kamara. To understand the climate Kamara was making his film in, you have to understand a little bit about Guinea. It's a conservative and predominantly Muslim country. An Afrobarometer survey on attitudes towards homosexuality found that Guinea is among the most intolerant towards LGBTQ people. Sully told me this information isn't just for people outside the continent. But we also have to do that with a lot of things. Like when we're talking about um, a story that, you know, talks about transgender um, issues, we actually have to break down a lot of things um, in a way because a, a lot of times people may not have that information or understand why we're using these specific pronouns or why we're using this specific language, you know, why we have to place it in these ways. And we have to do that also for, for you know, gay community as well. Because everyone is not as versed about their community as you think they would be. While Sully and her team of three other producers have to keep a diverse audience in mind, there's another potential audience member they have to consider. The government. In particular, the Film Classification Board in Kenya. Sully says the board censors all manner of content in films, on YouTube, plays. In fact, she says movie producers have been arrested for producing queer stories. But what, what's happened is that because podcasting technically isn't in the purview of the Film Classification Board, actually no audio medium is um, currently. They haven't actually gone after podcasts yet. And because podcasting is fairly new here, um, and it doesn't have the the um, audience and listenership as say like YouTube or you know even major films or radio, it has been able to kind of like go sort of underneath the radar, as you will. I feel like they're like there's only so much we can do with our staff. <laughs> we'll deal with podcasting when it gets a bit bigger. <laughs> we'll come for them then, kind of thing. Um, and so we we've been able to kind of like you know keep producing um, and you know and we're not breaking the law. Have you had to change the content of the podcast in order to not draw attention to it from the uh, from the board? Yes, there's times where we we have to we have to think really carefully about taking a government to task 
around things that come up in these stories um, because we know that if if for whatever reason that story is taken and blown up, particularly in international media or online, then you know we become more of a threat than just like a novelty, you know. Um, so in those ways, we do have to be mindful. Um, and I know there's actually been a couple times where we've done that, where we've had to kind of step away from from pointing fingers directly into the face of an African government. So it is, it's a balancing act in that way, yeah. When I was 16, I used the church as a cover to go and get laid or try to get laid. So those amens you guys were giving, <laughs> this brother needed to get touched. <laughs> In addition to the Oral so History Project friends, and the podcast and other you know, podcasts in production, Afroqueer holds live storytelling out. events. And I couldn't tell them, I also wanted sex, but I wanted sex with guys. I had watched enough straight porn at that time. <laughs> VHS. <laughs> As Sally mentioned, podcasting is still a relatively new thing in Africa. Afroqueer and other podcasts are doing what they can to encourage listenership, like these live events. But they also have to educate listeners, explain what a podcast is and how to listen and how it's not YouTube. In fact, Sully says some podcasters are finding greater success when they post their podcast to YouTube because audiences are more familiar with that platform. And, of course, just like here in the States and elsewhere, monetizing is a question. She says podcast makers on the continent are learning how to finance programs in real time. And that often leads to podcasts that are largely just chatcasts. They're cheaper. Afroqueer is a much more complicated production than many other African podcasts, given its international reporting and focus on narrative. It's funded largely through listener donations and foundation grants. Eventually, I started telling my, my brothers, and then I told my stepmom and my dad. I come from a very liberal family. But at that point in time, as you're telling them, there's that fear of rejection. I'm lucky it didn't happen. And I'm grateful. Closets are depressing, lonely, and sad places. Closets are for clothes, not people. And I told myself, you know, if these guys can love me for who I am, who am I not to love myself? Thank you. Despite the uphill nature of producing a podcast in Africa, a podcast about LGBTQ people, no less, where there is homophobia and violence against gay people, there are government restrictions and a big need to teach people about podcasts and the challenge of funding. I mean, despite all of those obstacles, Afroqueer was selected for the PRX Google Podcast Creator Program. They've been nominated for the 2020 World Media Awards, along with the BBC and Al Jazeera, and they recently were nominated for two Webby Awards, including the episode Dakan. And so when people say to Sully, like I did, it must be so hard to produce in Africa, Sully says, yeah, it is, and... It's never um, all one thing, you know? A lot of times, this is going to be now the first time that someone ever asked them what happened. And, you know, and I'm an interviewer, I'm a journalist, I'm, you know, I'm trying to hold it together while someone is... You know, I'm packing some some something really f fucking terrible, <laughs> you know. Um, 
but it's also sitting with that person afterwards and we're, you know, we're having, we're breaking bread or we're having a drink and I'm also seeing, you know, the joy in their lives and they're telling me about the joy in their lives. And I think for me, that's what makes it almost, and sometimes a joyful, a joyful work to do this because it does mean a lot to, to people. It does mean a lot to people. And I'm very, very aware of that. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a very select group of people on the planet <laughs> you know, that really, really resonate, you know, with the show from a queer African perspective. But something needs to also be made for for that audience. And also for people, you know, the, the larger audience we have who might not, you know, share a lot of this this experience culturally um, or even geographically to also share in like the humanness of these stories. Sully Chum from Afroqueer. I spoke to her in Nairobi. Sully says they took a break from producing at the end of last year for the holidays, and then COVID-19 struck, so they delayed the release of new episodes for a while. However, Sully says they're back at it. They just released an episode about the virus, and they expect to be back on their regular schedule starting in late June. How Sound is a production of Transom and PRX. If you're an aspiring or even an experienced radio or podcast maker, go and have a listen to the show. It's one of my favorites. For more on audio storytelling, you can find all the episodes of How Sound on transom.org. Afroqueer is produced by me, Sally Chum, Ida Halinambi, and Mae Francis. Amelie Bertile-Yango is our associate producer. Rachel Wamoto is our social media manager. And Tevin Sudi is our sound editor. You're listening to our theme song, Power, by Maya and the Big Sky. Afroqueer is supported by Google and PRX, as well as the Wellspring Philanthropic Fund, the Ford Foundation, and the Dune Foundation. You can follow us on Instagram at Afroqueer Podcast. We're on Twitter at Afroqueer Pod. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website at www.afroqueerpodcast.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Sally Chum. Thanks for listening. Bawani ile.